0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, VMware are set to divest the end-user computing division, the end of the Citrix user group community was abruptly announced last week, and I have a roundup of the patch Tuesday news for December. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. And that includes Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by NetRix Pack where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, give these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. It has been another interesting week for VMware, who are moving into life post-Broadcom acquisition. Broadcom CEO Hock Tan said, quote, We are now refocusing VMware on its core business of creating private and hybrid cloud environments among large enterprises globally and divesting non-core assets." And in line with this, there were several different announcements from VMware relating to their product stack. As of December 11th, VMware no longer sells perpetual licenses for VMware products. VMware customers with perpetual licenses and active support contracts can continue using them and VMware will continue to provide support as defined in contractual commitments. But when customers' terms end, they will not have any support. Ars Technica suggests Broadcom will force customers into subscriptions, and it's offering upgrade pricing incentives. This shift is the natural next step in VMware's multi-year strategy to make it easier for customers to consume both existing offerings and new innovations. VMware believes that a subscription model supports their customers with the innovation and flexibility they need as they undertake their digital transformation, according to a blog post by VMware. They were posting some other blog posts as well that piqued my interest, including a general blog post that provided assurances of continued investment and support for desktop hypervisor products, including VMware Fusion and VMware Workstation, which, you know, Workstation, as I've said before on the podcast, happens to be my favorite VMware product. He also took the opportunity to point out some improvements like Windows 11 for ARM support on Macs, DirectX 11 support, and more. And they also pointed out that the desktop hypervisors overlap code with the ESXi and receive and will continue to receive many of the same enhancements. While the hypervisors for desktops see continued development and support, there are some question marks over the end-user computing products as a different blog post on VMware's site indicates an intent to divest the end-user computing division. This is something that has been speculated for some time, even before the acquisition was completed. The blog post and some of the UC team's social media channels indicates positivity with the move and even a renewed vigor to grow the products. The blog post suggests the EUC division is financially strong with healthy growth and profitability. It also suggests the division have an innovation engine that continuously delivers market-leading solutions such as VMware Workspace ONE and Horizon. And their newly expanded EUC division covers all critical business functions from IT to customer support. And the EUC business is led by an experienced team with deep domain expertise. The blog post suggests VMware remains committed to both its existing customers and partners and suggests the move will increase innovation and focus on the products, which does make sense if you consider VMware's bread and butter is the infrastructure side of things, not purely end-user computing, so the EUC division being spun off means they are not competing for attention and investment within an infrastructure-heavy organization. For the third week in a row on this podcast, I get to cite Insight, sources, but this time it is a direct source to me. On the face of this blog post, you could be forgiven for dismissing it as corporate spin. Of course, they would put a positive light on the announcement that they're divesting end-user computing. But according to my sources, this is actually a very positive move, and there's an emphasis on the fact the EUC division is highly profitable. So that little bullet point in the blog post suggesting this does hold water, it is true. And there is a feeling that moving away from a larger all-encompassing company, where much of the focus is on that infrastructure side, should benefit the end-user computing products, investment, and potentially even the support. Which does make sense, because if you've ever tried to get VMware support for the end-user computing stack or products, it does get a little bit lost in the mix. So for me, I think it'll be interesting to see how this develops further. Clearly there is room and a need for competition in the space. And it not only benefits VMware's end user computing division, but all of end user computing, because the way things are right now, to me it appears it's all going in one direction and we all need a viable alternative and a company to push innovation and pricing too. So I wish the best for all my friends in VMware's end user computing division and all of VMware too. There was disappointing news last week. Citrix announced that the Citrix user group community is effectively done, at least for now. They're bringing it back in-house and intend to go back to holding large events. So we may possibly get a Citrix synergy in the future, which is good news, but the direction for small community events under the Citrix umbrella appears to be at its end, at least for the foreseeable future. So good luck to the Omaha Citrix user group, who looks set to bring the curtain down on this incarnation of CugC, Fitting in my opinion as they had one of the best groups. And not to be opportunistic on such sad news but it seems like a good time to remind everyone of other community driven events like EUC Unplugged and E2EBC for example. There are also groups that preceded the creation of the CugC like the Norwegian Citrix User Group and newer events too like the EUC Forum in the UK. So if you were active in the CugC I suggest you get active in some of these other great community events because it is important that these community events thrive and we have an independent space to discuss things. It was patch Tuesday for December this week, and Microsoft have patched 34 flaws, including one zero day. A complete roundup of the patches or the vulnerabilities patched for this month includes 10 elevation or privilege vulnerabilities, 8 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 6 information disclosure vulnerabilities, 5 denial of service vulnerabilities, and 5 spoofing vulnerabilities. I guess it's hopefully good news that it's only 34 flaws because that's relatively low for the usual number of flaws being patched in a given month the one zero day is an amd zero day vulnerability disclosed back in august that previously remained unpatched labeled with cve-2023-20588 and this is a speculative leaks vulnerability in specific amd processors that could potentially return sensitive data the flaw was disclosed back in august with amd not providing any fixes other than recommending some mitigations They said for effective products, AMD recommended following software development best practices, which seemed like a bit of a cop-out. They said developers could mitigate this issue by ensuring that no privileged data is used in division operations prior to changing privilege boundaries. AMD believes that the potential impact of this vulnerability is low because it requires local access. But as of this month's patch Tuesday, Microsoft has released a security update that resolves this bug in impacted AMD processors. And as usual on Patch Tuesday, other vendors, you know, such as the likes of Adobe and Apple and others, have also released their own patches for their various products. And it is possible that we discover news of issues with the Windows updates and patches over the coming week or two. Although if it follows last month's trend, maybe we don't, because we are getting very close to the holidays again, and last month there wasn't a whole lot of news about issues caused by windows updates there were some but not as many as usual so i guess we'll have to wait and see last tuesday microsoft published an article stating full security support for windows 10 will end on october 14th 2025 but once again they will be offering an extended security updates option for three years pricing for windows 10 esu has not been announced yet but presumably but presumably it will follow other operating systems which incurred a price increase every year of that three years that you opt into the East to the extended security updates. So there is like a, a levy or a tax for each year you procrastinate and don't move off the OS. So this is certainly a warning shot 2025 is not far away. Usually it's about an 18 month turnaround for a Windows desktop OS migration. So it's time to really get serious about looking at alternatives. Similarly to how Microsoft offers Server 2012 R2 ESU for those moving workloads to Azure, Microsoft are offering Windows 10 ESU free of charge to those who opt to use Azure Virtual Desktop or Windows 365 Cloud PCs, which once again, in my opinion, is flying very close to the sun in terms of anti-competition. But regardless, if you're using Windows 10 as your primary operating system for desktops, now is the time to begin your migration planning. Apple have taken the rare step of backporting patches to older OSs for CVE-2023-42916 and 42917, which were discovered within the WebKit browser engine developed by Apple and used by the company's Safari web browser across its platforms including macOS, iOS, and iPadOS. The vulnerabilities effect actively exploited zero-day flaws to older iPhones and some Apple Watch and Apple TV models. The company says the bugs are now also patched for iPhone 8 and later, iPad Pro all models, iPad Air third generation and later, iPad fifth generation and later, and iPad mini fifth generation and later, Apple TV HD and Apple TV 4K all models, and Apple Watch Series 4 and later. So if you notice some Apple updates, install them. Google says it identified and fixed a bug causing customer files added to Google Drive after April or May this year to disappear. This is a story that I covered on last week's episode. They claim that the issue only affected a limited subset of users using the desktop drive app version 84.0.0.0 through 84.0.4.0. While some users completed the Google recommended procedure to restore their files, they did get a warning that some files could not be recovered. So not all files seem to have been recovered, at least by all users. Those who continue to experience loss are recommended to contact Google support. In terms of issues encountered for a cloud storage service, this is probably as bad as it gets. The latest Windows 11 Cider preview brings some interesting changes, including the ability to undock Copilot so you can use it as a standalone window, notepad is getting a character count, there are streamlined app installs from the store now and an ability to run some apps without actually installing them, and there's also some new settings available for widgets. Thanks to Carl Stallhood for pointing this one out. He pointed out that there's a update on Microsoft's Teams page stating that the automatic update for the new Teams from Classic Teams, I think we covered the naming before and how confusing it is, but this automatic update does not apply to virtual desktop infrastructure users. Classic Teams for VDI will reach end of support on June 30th, 2024. So if you're on that VDI version You can't rely on the same kind of update mechanism and flow that regular desktop users has. So you'll need to start planning and consider uh, the new teams for your VDI initiatives. Google has made its 20 gigabit per second fiber internet service official. And it is now available for pre-order for select customers. And it's going to be at about $250 per month. It is expected to be made available early next year, and a Wi-Fi 7 router will be provided to customers. Google Fiber will be available for customers in Kansas City, North Carolina's Triangle region, Arizona, and Iowa, at least at first. And even though it is a hefty $250 per month, which on the face of it might seem like a lot, it actually works out at the best value of all G Fiber offerings, working out as about $12.50 per gigabit per second. In a somewhat understandable but also somewhat disappointing move 23andme updated their user agreement which started arriving in customers inboxes last week the new terms contain stronger language to prevent a party from bringing a class action lawsuit against 23andme it stated quote to the fullest extent allowed by applicable law you and we agree that each party may bring disputes against the other party only in an individual capacity and not as a class action or collective action or class arbitration. 23andMe claims that these changes were added to make the dispute process more efficient and understandable to customers. 23andMe told BleepComputer.com that, quote, the recent revisions to our terms of service provide more details and clarity around the arbitration process. For example, the informal resolution period has been extended to 60 days, which makes that process more efficient for customers. So (laughs) uh, yeah, it's obviously 23 and me trying to protect themselves against a large class action lawsuit that could be very damaging. uh, But they're trying to paint it as some sort of benefit to their customers, which I don't believe it is. Tom Arbuthnot shared an interesting point on Teams that states, starting January, the Chrome browser will begin gradually rolling out privacy sandboxing, which greatly impacts Microsoft Teams users using Chrome. Microsoft's recommendation is for users to use the full desktop app. Teams web app will display a banner and require users to click it every 24 hours to remain signed in. Embedded experiences such as apps may no longer work. And when this happens, users will have the option of opening the embedded experience in a separate browser tab. Other affected experiences include Teams chat in the Outlook web app and Dynamics 365 and the share to Teams option in Outlook. Enterprise admins who manage Chrome can use block third-party cookies and cookies allowed for URLs policies to avoid impact on managed machines. So heads up if you use Chrome, you may start to experience this type of behavior uh, when the sandboxing feature is delivered. This week, the video game world went crazy over a game called The Day Before as the game was finally revealed two years after its initial trailer was released and unfortunately it looked nothing like the trailer it looked nothing like the trailer that was released 2 years ago but not to be outdone and more enterprise related google has been caught in a little bit of controversy themselves for a video that they released about a week ago showing their ai offering called gemini that is a multimodal ai service that looks set to compete with gpt4 It can take input as text, video, images, etc. and the video that they released, the trailer if you will, makes it look incredible. In fact, it looks far more advanced than anything currently on the market, but they included a disclaimer that said, for the purposes of this demo, latency has been reduced and Gemini's outputs have been shortened for brevity. They also had another video that showed how it was made and the prompting to the AI was not quite as impressive as what they had showed in their trailer. CNBC reports that internally, some at Google were concerned about the video's accuracy. Some employees argue that it paints an unrealistic picture of Gemini's ease of use, with one employee telling Bloomberg that most individuals familiar with large language language models are cautious about marketing hype, which (laughs) I think the cat is already out of the bag on this one because the marketing hype around AI is massive. I mean, I was at the uh, IOCS event in Las Vegas last week and AI was all over the place. Even even by vendors who have products that are not even really AI related, they had one or two AI related features being highlighted at their boots or in their content. My buddy Tim Mangan had a great session at AppManage Event in October talking about the problem of applications that rely on legacy platforms runtimes and frameworks such as applications dependent on old versions of .NET framework or Visual C++ redistributable versions. This week I noticed a tweet from another friend of mine, Steve Greenberg, who shared a PCMag article about how prevalent COBOL still is in many industries, with the 64-year-old programming language still dominant in banking, automotive, insurance, government, healthcare and finance, with finance in particular an interesting one, as reportedly 43% of all banking systems are still using COBOL, which handles $3 trillion worth of daily transactions, including 95% of all ATM activity in the U.S. and 80% of all in-person credit card transactions. The problem is that those with COBOL experience are hitting retirement age, and younger workers never learned it. The PCMag article suggests IBM may turn to AI to tackle the challenge of modernizing applications that currently use COBOL. Similar, I guess, to my videos of using ChatGPT for creating PowerShell scripts, the article contains a video showing the use of AI for assisting with breaking down COBOL code and refactoring to something more current. The article suggests it doesn't get you all of the way there; it is about 80 to 90 percent effective in the way that it works, uh, which also in my opinion, sounds pretty similar to my own experience and success rate with ChatGPT for PowerShell. So it gets you most of the way there, but you do need to have an underlying understanding of the language in order to fix the other 20 or 10%. And continuing on from Tim's point and the COBOL article I just mentioned, BleepyComputer.com reported on research by Vericode who suggests roughly 38% of applications using the Apache Log4J library are using a version vulnerable to security issues, including Log4Shell, the vulnerability that I covered last year, and (laughs) I actually might have been two years ago. Geez, But it's a critical vulnerability that was identified as CVE-2021-44228. So yeah, the 2021 in there suggests it was two years ago. My God, time is flying. Uh, But that one, if you can't remember, carried a maximum severity rating, and it was a big, big issue as a lot of products use the Log4Shell or Log4J library for their own internal logging purposes. And according to Veracode's findings, 79% of developers opt never to update third-party libraries after their initial inclusion in their code base to avoid breaking their functionality. And this is true even if 65% of open source library updates contain minor changes and fixes unlikely to cause functional problems. Moreover, the study showed that it takes 50% of projects over 65 days to address high severity flaws. And it takes 13.7 times longer than usual to fix half of what's in their backlog when understaffed and over 7 months to handle 50% of it when lacking information. Unfortunately, Veracode's data shows the Log4Shell has not been the wake-up call many in the security industry hoped it would be. Instead, Log4J alone continues to be a source of risk in one out of three cases and may be one of the multiple ways attackers can leverage a compromise on a given target. The recommendation for companies is to scan their environment, find versions of open source libraries in use, and then develop an emergency upgrade plan for all of them. So putting the onus on enterprises to discover these libraries in their environment, and then if the developers or vendors of those products do not have a patched version, move to something else. I would add my own two cents in, (laughs) which I think I touched on a little bit during my festive tech calendar session that's on this Thursday. Uh, You could also take some more preventative measures of reducing the surface layer for attack uh, by running your applications as containers. Wink! Uh, But now, this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Dan Goff had a great tip shared by Master Packager on a quick way to find errors, or at least a quicker way to find errors, in Windows installer logs. He says you can search for value three, so that's the string value three in the log, instead of searching for error, because if you're a search for error, it can bring up a whole lot of stuff because there can be other references to error that are not actually an error within the package itself. So this one could have been a hot job now, but I was actually thinking about it and I don't think I've done a hot job on the podcast in a long time. And part of the reason was because when I initially started doing it, it was before the pandemic and I was mostly highlighting remote work opportunities because those were not the norm. They were not standard. But now. That's kind of less so the case. But regardless, the awesome Ron Oglesby put out a call to EUC people and said that he's looking for some pro services rock stars that want to work remote. They must have EUC knowledge and scripting skills like PowerShell, JavaScript, etc. They could be North America or Europe-based, but they've got to have those skills. So if that suits you, uh, reach out to Ron. Uh, He's an awesome guy, brilliant to deal with, brilliant to work with. Uh, So reach out to Ron for more. An interesting tweet caught my eye from my buddy Trent Tai, who was responding to a tweet with a pop-up notification from Teams viewer that was warning about basically overuse of the product and that commercial use was detected and that the session would be terminated after five minutes. So essentially someone was using it across too many devices and it deemed that their use was no longer like a, a personal license or use type. Uh, and, Trent pointed out that ControlUp Edge DX is available for up to 50 users. So if you'd like a license of Edge to provide remote support and get to those machines of yours, consider Edge DX. And the Cloud Paging User Group is going to be taking place this Friday at 2.30pm GMT time, which is 3.30pm Central European time, and about 9.30am Eastern time. I think I promoted it last week because I thought that I might not get an episode out this week before it. But I got this episode out. So if you're interested in finding out about custom application events and how powerful those are and how you can use them with your application containers, uh, come to this session. And the group is also going to have Numescent Leadership at it uh, to talk a little bit about roadmap for Cloud Pager for the coming year. And finally, to promote something of my own, my festive tech calendar session on helping Santa automate application packaging and patching is going to take place this Thursday at 10 a.m. And if you can't make it for the actual live event, uh, the recording will be available on demand. So I'll probably give a reminder on next week's episode that the recording is available too, in case you miss it. But that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.